Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. The point is, is that there was sports, there was business going on there, but there was something bigger happening. Journalists are in the business of telling stories and their stories affect how we understand and see the world. We did this piece about the economics of professional women's sports at a time where there's a huge discussion going on around equality, economic equality, gender equality, racial equality, and all of those things you know, looking at them in the crucible of sports, I think is both more interesting and I dare say more accessible for people because it's not abstract and people love sports. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Building on a solid relationship with the media is an important step for any public company, but exposing yourself can also feel like a risk. That's because the consequences of negative press can be very real. Jobs lost, lower stock prices, etc. But the media is one critical way that companies can shape their perception, and the way to approach it is through long-term relationships with the press. They're critical and very similar to how companies approach their institutional investors long-term relationships, ongoing dialogue. It all can have a positive effect on all stakeholder groups. Reporters get to know and trust you, and in return, that may position them to not only celebrate your wins, but also keep the faith when there are losses. Our guest today is an expert on the media. Jason Kelly is chief correspondent for Bloomberg Quick Take, as well as the host and co-creator of two Quick Take original series, The Business of Sports and Portrait. He's also the author of Sweat Equity and the New Tycoons and has been reporting on business for almost two decades. I caught up with Jason to talk about the evolution of media and the trends that he's observed while working at the intersection of business, sports, and culture for the last 20 years. Let's enter the arena with Jason Kelly. You know, what my mom would tell you is that she signed me up for a creative writing class when I was five years old. And from then on, I wanted to be a writer. I really was that guy who was, you know, working on the elementary school paper, the high school paper, went to college and and really had a very clear idea of what I wanted to be when I grew up, like from a very, very young age. You know, journalism is, has become such a, a wide ranging, multi-platform endeavor, I don't think I fully anticipated all the different things that that I would get to do and, and be able to do uh, across journalism. But 
you know, to me, I, at my core, I consider myself a writer, and and I wanted to be that from from practically when I could walk. Yeah, and and obviously, writing is a massive component of what you do. But what are the other qualities that make like a great journalist in your mind? I think it's all about curiosity. I, I mean, I think it's just wanting to understand a situation, wanting to understand people, wanting to understand how people relate to one another, understanding people's motivations, their histories. And I think one of the things that I realized as I got into my professional career of being a journalist is that those stories are consistent across all types of journalism. I went to college thinking I was going to be a political journalist and and by the time I started my career, my best option was to be a business journalist. And I totally fell in love with it and and realized that those are some of the most compelling stories out there. But I think, especially back in the day, you know, back in the mid-90s when I started, that wasn't a, a conventional path. Business journalism was this kind of corner of, of the business. I think it's blossomed into something much bigger. But it's a story about people and it's a story about money and and all and everything in between and and I think that realization that I'd always been fascinated by politics and and that winning and losing is defined in one way there winning and losing is defined in in different ways when it comes to business but in some ways I think more complex and and arguably more interesting have to be willing to write things that people don't like. Like, uh, you must be good at that. I think as long as you are upfront about it. I mean, one of the things that I learned early on in my Bloomberg career, which is now almost 20 years in, was that a subject for the most part should never be surprised by what you're going to say or write or present. Um, and I think if you use that as, as one of your animating principles, it's, it's a situation where, where someone may ultimately not like it, but if it's true, then it is what it is. And, and, and if you are able to present as full a a case and an explanation if and if you give them a chance to you know explain themselves defend themselves what whatever that may be then i think it'll all be okay <laughs> as as it were yeah yeah it's like an it's an obli- it's an obligation you know you got to you got to you got to put the facts out there and they are what they are and people need to know that it is it is interesting though you know that uh, i was a former research analyst you know writing that and they want to sue you and they go crazy and um, you know other people are very rational about it they realize it's someone doing their job and you're not always going to have a um, a positive slant on things but it's worth your while to have a relationship with the with the media right it, it's important yeah and and I think that relationship piece cannot be overstated and and I think one of the things that I learned early on in my career and I've tried to practice is the notion that it's a long game and that, you know, I've been very fortunate to cover beats, you know, lots of different beats, but, you know, really to, 
to dig into an industry or to dig into a company or a subject, you know, even in the business that I'm in now, producing documentaries and and sort of creating them, you know, even those are 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 long relationships in in some ways, even if it's a relatively short documentary, you know, you're you're getting to know someone and and oftentimes my experience so far in doing this is that those are the product of longstanding relationships, either directly with that person or with people who that person trusts. And so I think one of the ways to compensate, as it were, for those uncomfortable moments is to reassure someone and to essentially come to an agreement that it is a long game. Things can change, you know, right. and and knowing someone in your position is actually a very valuable thing. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I look at um, our clients and we help them with the media and with other stakeholder groups. And, you know, I always say everything is about relationships and sometimes the media is the boogeyman a little bit. But, you know, it's people just doing their job and having those relationships can really be meaningful. Yeah. And, and I think on the point of relationships, the the idea of cultivating them over a long period of time and also cultivating them in moments where you don't immediately need something or or need that person i think is one of the most valuable things that 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 i really learned along the way and and i think there is a there's a tendency and I would go so far as to say like a danger in, in sort of the current, you know, kind of quick hit environment to be over transactional, as it were, and to not think long term and to not take a beat and develop a relationship and just sort of move on to the next. And, you know, I mean, not to be too grandiose about it, but it's like I worry about that in, in this current environment that we're in, especially because, you know, we live in this in this remote world, I, I was just talking to a, a senior executive on, on Wall Street last night. We had a drink and we were talking about this kind of coming back to work moment that we're all in. And I dare say that the people who've been doing this for a while, like you and I have, we appreciate those early lessons that we had from just kind of being in the room as it were, and and not even being a principal in the room, but, you know, sitting on the proverbial sort of backbench and just and observing and probably observing things that we didn't even realize we were observing, you know, that that I would I would say I'd be sitting somewhere and watching a negotiation. And I might say, huh, well, I see how Tom handled that situation versus the way Bill did versus the way Jane did. And I'm going to take something from that. And and again, it may not even be conscious, but there's a lot of learning that that happens along the way and and it's not always immediate or obvious. It's an interesting segue, um, you know, those relationships and, you know, journalism means different things to different people. I mean, documentaries and all the stuff you have going on, it sounds super exciting. I mean, I've been very fortunate at, at Bloomberg to sort of have five or six careers at one place, uh, you know, and... You know, I started as a print journalist and, and fast forward to today, I'm making documentaries in our Quick Take Originals group and, you know, largely focused on the business of sports and, and looking really at this intersection that we describe as the intersection of business, sports and culture. You know, I, I think we're at this moment um, where 
sports have always been prevalent in our lives, but but I think the economics of sports have changed dramatically, whether you think about it from a team perspective, uh, an individual perspective, an athlete's perspective, just a fan's perspective. Uh, so many different inputs. I'm writing a script right now. I, I literally, before I came to tape this, I was diving into a script for, for a documentary that's going to be coming out in a few weeks and and trying to sort of synthesize all those issues. What's interesting for me about the documentary form, and these are short documentaries that we're making usually, you know, somewhere between 15 and 25 minutes. And, you know, part of the interesting thing about that is, you know, it's really digitally led. And so we take the time we need to tell the stories and not much more, not much less. And, and we can be fairly flexible on that. You know, the technology around video has changed so dramatically and I think the consumption of video is at an all-time high, obviously, and so much of what we consume is on mobile. And I think the other observation I would make from doing this for a little while now is that we live in such an on-demand world. You know, no one's listening to us do this live. You know what I mean? They're all going to consume it in their car, on a run, on a treadmill, on a train, a bus, a plane, whatever, whatever that may be. And I think that's been one of the real insights for me is to be able to tell the stories in the time that I need to tell the stories and present them in such a way that the consumer of them, the audience of those documentaries or, or those of those stories can consume them in the time that they want to consume. You know what I mean? I just, it, it's such a different, in many ways, obvious, but different way of thinking. And, and when I think about where I started in my career at, you know, in newspapers and, to now, it's a journey. These days, the business of sports is more complicated than ever. From college athletes being allowed to monetize their names and images to the rise in popularity of sports NFTs. With so many compelling stories to choose from, how do journalists like Jason decide where to focus their coverage and where to focus their time? I think that the best and cleanest answer to that is probably the culture piece of it and the and the broader societal piece of it. I think the work that we've done over the past year, and so we did a four-episode run that we released in the spring, and we did a four-episode run that we released in the fall. And if you go across those eight episodes, whether it's Americans investing in English football clubs, whether it's the changing nature of college athletics. So to your point, we did a piece about that. Whether it's the UFC, a deep dive we did into the UFC, or whether it's the economics of professional women's sports, all of them speak to the notion that yes, there's money and yes, there's sports, but there's something bigger going on. There's some reflection of the world at large. There's some reflection of a of a change that's happening. The very first episode that we did at, of this series actually took me back, unfortunately, virtually, because <laughs> uh, it was last February, uh, to my hometown of Atlanta. And we looked at the role that the, the, the Atlanta Hawks, the Atlanta Dream, and the Atlanta Falcons all had on the 2020 election. And, you know, this was an election, and we're talking about Georgia again uh, now in the in the headlines as we look toward 22. But, you know, Georgia in many ways was this microcosm of the nation 
Um, and, and ultimately what happened there helped decide the presidency and, and the, and the balance of power because of the, the two Senate seats that, that were up there. What was less known, uh, I think was that it was Atlanta where the president of the Atlanta Hawks, Steve Coonan, longtime Atlanta executive made the decision, had the idea, and then was able to execute it to open State Farm Arena, the Hawks' home court, which was obviously not being used because basketball was on hold. Um, it, it was in the bubble at that point as a massive voting precinct. So 40,000 people voted at State Farm Arena in an election that turned on 12,000 votes. So that's a long answer to your question. But the the point is, is that there was sports, there was business going on there, but there was something bigger happening. You know, we we did this piece about the economics of, of professional women's sports at a time where there's a huge discussion going on around equality, economic equality, gender equality, racial equality, and all of those things, you know, looking at them in the crucible of sports, I think is both more interesting and I dare say more accessible for people because it's not abstract and people love sports. <laughs> I mean, not to be too silly about it. People love their sports teams. I mean, I'm, you know, you and I could, I'm sure go down a rabbit hole about our, our favorite college and pro teams and rising and falling on, you know, how they're doing at any given time. Because it's live and authentic, but you know, I'm so curious of your opinion on this next question, which uh, we briefly talked about ahead of time, which was A, the documentary format, B, merging that with sport, and um, maybe the, the last part of the question is the different techniques that are changing the documentary formats. Give us your opinion on The Last Dance and how that, you know, kind of blasted a hole through the universe during COVID and kind of changed that format in your opinion, because uh, super interesting. Yeah. I, I Listen, I think we will look back on, on The Last Dance as this seminal moment in filmmaking and certainly documentary filmmaking for a couple reasons. I mean, I think one, from an almost technical perspective, or from a technical perspective, it showed you the value of an archive. And, you know, there was all this footage that they were able to sort of bring forth that I think I know started to have other people think about, oh, well, what do I, you know, what do I have? <laughs> were, were we recording that? I mean, I think that was one element that really sort of opened people's eyes about Last Dance. I think because we were all literally a captive audience. Um, the viewership was, you know, off the charts. And and I think a lot of Michael Jordan's personality came through. The other thing, you know, from, from a very um, somewhat parochial perspective that we've like shamelessly used and, and to the point where we just call it the Jordan move in some of our documentaries is the notion of recording an interview with someone and then showing a part of that interview to the subject that uh, of the documentary, I have to say, it's an amazing tool. <laughs> it is, it's an incredible thing. It was one of the coolest moments in The Last Dance when they handed him like Isaiah Thomas speaking about it. And, and you're like, you can't fake that reaction, right? No. So I think so many things sort of change. I, I think they're also, 
I dare say, was a, a validation of something that we that we had been thinking about, which is this notion of how culturally and economically relevant these major sports figures are. And in many ways, if you think about what that era foretold, and I may be taking this a step too far, but if you think about what we've subsequently seen and what we saw in the summer of 2020 around athlete empowerment and the strong voice that athletes have uh, in the in broader society, you think about something like More Than a Vote, which was the operation that LeBron, James, and, and others sort of stood up to rally people to get to the polls. Um, the cultural relevance of sports is massive. Massive. And, and the fact that athletes can talk directly to people now versus going through a journalist, for example, right, doing an interview and it's just like, whoa, you know, there is a shift in in power here. And, you know, and obviously anybody can do that, but they, they're in a position to have a massive uh, following. So it, it, it just, I mean, it just seems like what that, that area that you've picked is, is so dynamic and, and changing that you could have a career's worth of stories to tell, right? We could talk for an hour on that one topic, but it, it sounds to me like um, putting a bow on quick takes. It just seems like a platform where there's tons of possibilities. You obviously have the the sports and commerce and 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 all of that merging. Um, you have something called portrait on there as well, Jason, and and maybe tell us what that is, and and then what what quick takes could be in the future. Sure. I, so Portrait is another series that that we've been working on that is trying to turn the, the typical profile a little bit on its head, in part using some of these uh, methods that we've been talking about, about bringing other voices in. It also sort of spoke to, to this broader, I think, cultural moment that, that we're having around representation and who's at the table, who's making the content. And one of the things that that series allows us to do is to, you know, talk to, you know, some people that that you've heard of and, and may not know as much about. So um, Jerry of Ben and Jerry's was one of the subjects that, that we that we did for that one. But we also did a piece about Charles King, Charles D. King, who's a movie producer who started out as an agent at WME and went on to create his own production company and, and financing company and media company called Macro. So he went from representing Tyler Perry and Oprah and a number of high profile, mostly black entertainers and, and impresarios. And what he realized, and, and I think, you know, this is something that, that we think about and talk about a lot at Quick Take and at Bloomberg overall, is where the power resides. And one of the things I took away from my interview with Charles King was, this notion of, you know, he who has the money has the power. And, you know, he was one of the producers of Judas and the Black Messiah, Oscar-winning movie. And one of the stories that he that he tells, and, and in fact, in that piece, Ryan Coogler talked about the same thing, was that this was a fantastic movie that should have been made. Ryan Coogler was producing it. He was coming off of Black Panther, one of the most successful movies of all time. And yet, had they not brought 50% of the money to the table, it wouldn't have gotten made. And so this notion of, and and there's also this this idea of of opportunity as well that, that Charles talks about of 
you know, all these different jobs, not just in front of the camera, but behind the camera as well, and, and sort of putting putting the whole business together. So that's part of what is an animating part of what we're trying to do with, with Portrait is to tell tell a lot of those stories. Yeah, no, that's really cool. And so in addition to that, you've written a couple of books, The New Tycoons in 2012 on private equity, and and you also wrote uh, Sweat Equity uh, on, on the business of, of sport, which is really cool. It sounds like you don't have enough hours in the day to do what you do, but <laughs> would you consider doing another book or or is it more, do you think you reach more people through kind of video, documentary, things like that, or kind of is it a mix of both? I think it's a mix. Um, I will say that there is, from a professional perspective, writing a book is one of the most satisfying things I've ever done. It was just very fulfilling. and And I think that, because I'm not a novelist and because I was still reporting some of the book, I was still interviewing people. And so I was also able to engage with people as a journalist in a different way because I was going to interview people, whether it was Henry Kravis or Steve Schwartzman or David Rubenstein or, you know, all these titans of the private equity business who I'd interviewed before. But I was coming in with a different offering and coming in with a different motivation and I would sit down with them, you know, for, you know, one, two, three hours at a time and just have them tell me stories about growing up and their early days. And I'm so jealous. That just sounds like ridiculous. Yeah, it was really great because I could see their demeanor change a little bit. And, and this goes back to something we were talking about earlier that, you know, there's this natural tendency that we all have, I think, where you know, a journalist is asking us questions and I say this as a journalist and, you know, you're thinking about every word and, you know, especially if it's a quick interaction and you know that you only have 10 minutes or whatever that is and you've got to get to your talking points and I'm guessing, you know, this is advice that you're giving people all the time. But, you know, when you're writing a book, it's not coming out for months or a year and you're talking about things that aren't that immediate and oftentimes these are, I mean, it's not always great memories, but, you know, sometimes these are really good memories. You know, these are, you know, this is Henry Kravis and George Roberts talking about, you know, being together when they were seven years old. You know, they've, they're cousins. They've known each other for that long and sort of the foundation of that relationship and how that translates over decades and decades and and their decision to leave Bear Stearns with their boss when they're 35, 36 years old to start this firm that becomes, you know, one of the iconic investment firms in the world, you know, that's a really, that's an, it's fascinating to me, but I dare say it's an interesting conversation for them as well um, to sort of reflect on that. So I think that's part of why I, I really enjoyed the book. And, and then- Who was the most interesting person you interviewed during the new tycoons, if you don't mind me asking, or so, something that just pops into your mind? The most interesting person- is probably well-known to anybody who's listening to this who's worked on Wall Street, but maybe less so for others. And he's sadly no longer with us. Jimmy Lee, who was the vice chairman of, of J.P. Morgan. Um, so I walked in to see him when I was reporting the book, and I sort of laid out for him, and I said, so the primary kind of characters in the book from a firm perspective or Blackstone, Carlisle, KKR, and TPG. 
And I said that to him and he said, all right. He said, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, sort of some general stuff. And he said, the next time you come to see me, I'm going to tell you a story about each of those firms that no one's ever heard before. And he did. He totally delivered. And this happened with sweat equity as well. And I think it's the key to a story. It's certainly a key to a book. You need one of those like Rosetta Stones that can open a bit of a world to you. And and Jimmy did that for me. And and I'm forever grateful to him for that. So cool. Um, shifting a little bit, Jason, we've talked a little bit about the the rearview mirror kind of stuff and the and the things that you're currently working on. When you look into 2022, given like COVID, hopefully recovery, whatever, like what do you what do you see as the trends um, out there? What do you think people are going to be focusing on? From a storyline perspective, in our personal lives and in our work lives, we're going to continue to be asking big questions about who we are, what we want to do, where we want to do it, for whom we want to do it, with whom we want to do it. I mean, I've been doing this for a few decades. I've never seen a moment like this, not after 9-11, not after the dot-com crash, not after the Great Recession. There's a lingering effect to this, and, and obviously we're not out of the pandemic yet, but I think whether you're talking about Great Resignation whether you're talking about migration to different parts of the country and different parts of the world, whether it is the perennial tension that happens among generations, all of it's heightened at, at this point. I have very few conversations these days, whether it's with Wall Street folks or sports folks or anywhere in between that don't somehow revolve around how their day-to-day lives are different. Our relationship with our employers, like everything's changed. And There's I, like a permanence to it all, right? Yes, yes. Like after, you, funny you mentioned 9-11, like, you know, that was just a tragic, unbelievable event. You know, kind of the things that changed, though, were like, you know, you take your shoes off when you go through security in the airport. This is like people are moving all over the world. They're working remotely. You know, it, it like to your point that the stuff that's happening now just seems so gigantic and significant and permanent. Right. Yeah. You know, from the perspective of, of what I do as a journalist, I, I think 22 continues to be a year for all of us to to experiment and to try new things. You know, I'm a huge believer, as I said earlier, in this notion that we are living for the most part in an on-demand world. And again, I really have the benefit of some almost focus groups <laughs> around my own dinner table. And, and, and I'm sure you do too, about, you know, watching how kids consume things today and candidly how adults consume things today. You know, I, I think about, I mean, my my 18-year-old who's a freshman in college, he's heard me quote him before about this. He came in to our house, I don't know, a year ago and said, and and by the way, this is when, this is when I still had a radio show. He's like, who listens to the radio? <laughs> because his his point was he gets into the car, he plugs in his phone, he listens to Spotify. Yeah, he's either listening right. to a podcast or a playlist or whatever that is. You know, we cut the cord. You know, I love sports as is clear from this conversation and I definitely still watch live sports. Yeah. But 
everything else I consume when I want to. I, you know, I watch Succession when it's convenient for me. And I'm not going to stay up till 10 to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. I'm going to watch it the next day. 100%. Um, so I, I think that that media shift that was underway, was accelerated by the pandemic, certainly changes what we do as journalists and then everything around journalism and consumption and media and all of those things uh, continues, to, continues to change. Um, so we have, we have a lot of, as we mentioned before, a lot of CEOs and C-suite types who, who may listen to, to these podcasts. Like what advice do you have for CEOs in an era of immediate information, can lose your job over any anything you know crisis situations can unravel like how do you what kind of advice do you give fast growing volatile companies about dealing with the media and um, and doing that in the right way to echo something we talked about earlier i think realizing it's a long game as hard as that is at times is something to to really keep in mind Except in, you know, egregious cases, often the world moves on very fast from, you know, a, a mistake or a misstep or a, whatever that, that may be. It doesn't feel like it in the moment. And then suddenly the world has moved on to something else. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you an example um, that is, I think, quite benign. When Lincoln Riley went from Oklahoma to USC it was all anybody could talk about until Brian Kelly went to LSU. I, I mean, it was literally like within 24 hours. Right, right. Everyone, like it, it was like a cartoon where the mass of people just like to the next story. I mean, it was incredible. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. the other advice, which may feel counterintuitive, but is paired with this notion of it being a long game is that I think CEOs, and I'm 100% talking my own book here as a, as a as someone who makes, you know, short to long form documentaries. Totally get it, as you should. I think that in an era where you're tempted to say less, saying more often works out a lot better. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you why. I have seen now in this work how over the course of several conversations, people start to become not just more honest, but candidly more likable. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that oftentimes a CEO is so focused on very well-developed and well-consulted, I'm sure, talking points. But, you know, this is a person, a, a man or a woman who is like living this business day to day and has so many insights and and a lot of nuanced in, insights that may take some time to sort of work through and get to. But often, and you know this better than anyone, CEOs are scheduled to the minute. And so they don't really take the time. And I have, and, and I say this again, having been the beneficiary of late, of people who've essentially said, okay, I'm in. Like, I, I'm in, I'm in for today, or I'm in for a couple days, or you got two hours, or whatever that is, 
and the quality of the product, not just for me, the quality of the end product for them, you know, how they look to the world is so much better. It's, I can't even describe it to you. It's so much better. Authenticity is very endearing and robotic pre-programmed is not endearing, you know? And I think everyone knows that when you're running a company, you're going to go sideways. Things are out of your control. They can affect the business. And it's just so obvious, like for you, you've been around this like your entire career. It's so obvious when someone's not being straightforward about something or like acknowledging something that everyone knows. You know, you could have a company where the stock price has gone down 50%, whatever the reason is, you know, things out of the company's control. And it's this relentlessly positive um, conversation and, you know, acknowledging where you are, acknowledging, you know, sometimes the story isn't things are amazing, but you know what, we're in a turnaround phase and we're in phase one of three phases and it's going to be great and, you know, pay attention to us and keep your eye on us. You kind of leave, you leave that interview or you, or you leave that interaction kind of like, I like that woman or I like that guy, you know, like they're being straightforward. Like this is someone I can trust to, tell me what's going on. And um, I always thought that was a good quality of Jamie Dimon in a way where he kind of almost didn't care. Like he'd be like, yeah, you know what? Things aren't good right now. Or, you know, and people are like, okay, you know, I, I can make decisions based on that information. So my last question, Jason, what's the most interesting story that you ever worked on or what pops into your mind? I, I, I'll give you two. I mean, one is the Business Week cover story about LeBron and his business partner, Maverick Carter. It was the cover of Business Week, but we also did an accompanying TV interview, sort of long-form digital video TV interview. And the circumstances of it were, it ended up taking months and months to do for lots of different reasons, one of which was a global pandemic. And it was about his business. And ultimately, the precipitating event that, got us to publish the story was the murder of George Floyd and LeBron's desire, LeBron and Maverick's desire to talk about their company and to talk about themselves in the context of what was happening in the country. And I learned so much about representation and history and things that are systemic in the country and in business. And, and it was, it was a big moment. It was a very memorable experience to say the least. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it also, I think galvanized me from a journalist perspective to understand what we've been talking about so much in this conversation of this, nexus of business, sports, and culture, that like we are at a moment that I think is is really important and interesting, and I feel very fortunate to, to be able to, to cover it. The other story that, that always jumps out to me is in 2011, I was able to go to Afghanistan for a business story and embed with a a group within the, that was under the auspices of the Department of Defense that was doing economic development in Afghanistan and I'm still very close with the the guy that I went with and um, you know seeing seeing that part of the world 
being that far from home and, and, and having that experience was a very meaningful one as well. As we heard from Jason today, winning in the court of public opinion is a long-term proposition. And honestly, it's usually your best tool to shape perception. Sure, it's easy to shy away from the press, but if you can develop relationships over time, your brand will definitely be better off. As we always say, if you don't tell your own story, somebody else is gonna tell it, and you probably won't like the outcome. Welcome to the arena. We're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app or leaving a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. I'd like to thank Jason Kelly of Bloomberg for coming on today. He's an amazing storyteller. Please check out some of the quick take documentaries that he's put together. They're fascinating, well-reported, and you can finish them during your lunch break. We'll see you next time, back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.